podcast. J.P. Morgan. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined by Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein in the uh, weird uh, curtains hanging in a circle studio. We're in a sort of fabric jail. Yeah, it's, we're in a temporary studio, to be clear, of our situation. It's eerie. It's a little weird. Help. Yes. Because <laughs> um, this is a cry for help. We really. need your help. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to bring a great show to you. We got a good white paper. Uh, we got, we're going to tell you how to make a fortune in the stock market. Um, but first, I think we, we were going to talk about... And why you lost a fortune in the stock market. Yes. If you're in the stock back. market, which most people more or less are not. Yeah, what you should definitely be doing is just like trading minute to minute based on podcast tips. <laughs> that's a good way. That's a good way to do it. Um, and that's and what true. that's what Warren Buffett would probably tell you when he's not revolutionizing the healthcare industry. Yeah, I think he'd actually tell you about his new venture in healthcare. So we wanted to talk about this kind of Bizarre cryptic press release that um, Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan put out last week that has gotten a lot of attention and speculation. So I just want to start by what has actually happened, because I think this can be confusing on its own. So the things we know, and this is all mostly based on a four-paragraph press release that came out last week. It's a coup of marketing, this whole thing. <laughs> it really. So we'll get to that. Um, so we know, and I'm just going to read some quotes that I thought were like the two most important sentences in this press release. One is that these three major companies, they say they're going to be partnering on ways to address healthcare for their U.S. employees with the aim of improving employee satisfaction and reducing costs. They also say they will form an independent company that is free from profit-making incentives and constraints. So these are the parameters of the Amazon Hathaway Morgan healthcare collaboration. We have not really gotten any details since. Um, you know, I put a question in our Facebook group, what do people want to know? Because we're going to talk about this on the episode. And a lot of people said they want to know what it is. And unfortunately, this is going to be a very unsatisfying podcast because we don't quite know what it is. But I think we can talk about, and what I thought would be interesting to do is talk about what it could be, where where it could change healthcare, where it couldn't. And as I was thinking about it last night getting ready for the podcast, I kind of saw three possible options of kind of where this might go. The first one that is probably very popular with healthcare wonks right now is nowhere. So there was like this press release. It had all this attention. Everyone's like, oh, Amazon, it's going to disrupt healthcare. Amazon's a disruptor. Like that's what it does. And there, there was a marked difference in the reaction from the tech people I follow and the healthcare people who were just like, meh, seen this before. Like this just seems like fluff. We don't know what they're doing. We don't know any detail about what actually this venture is. And one thing that leaned, that, that made me lean in this direction is what I read from earlier, that they're really looking at their own their own American employees. So they are not necessarily cons- working on some kind of consumer-facing project at this point. There was an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal earlier this week about Jamie Diamond calling some of their big, like, healthcare clients saying, like, you don't have to worry too much. Like, you're, you're going to be fine. And I think that is notable. And I think generally you can bet against disruption in healthcare. That is usually the safe bet in American healthcare, that there's a lot of people who make a lot of money off the way the system is set up right now. And you, with the lack of details, I think you've seen a lot of skepticism from the healthcare people of the world about whether this will do something. So option two, the medium option I think about is doing something for their workers. So let's say they do actually come up with a better way to serve. I think there's about 50 50,000 employees of, I don't know if that's Amazon or all three of them, but we're talking like 10. I think all three is probably bigger. Okay. All three, I think is more in like the 100,000-ish range. Um, So we could see something that changes the way they deliver healthcare to those people, um, which would also be kind of small ball. One thing I was wondering about when I read this announcement is whether this was going to be something called self-insurance, where essentially a company works with some kind of outside provider, maybe Amazon would or wouldn't do that, but they take on the risk for their own employee population. So instead of going to Aetna and saying, we're going to pay you $500 a person per month, if things go bad, you know, you take on the extra cost. If things go great, Aetna gets to keep that money. 
a self-insured company takes on that risk and they're responsible for any outsized medical bills. So it sounded like maybe they were doing some version of self-insurance, but again, like super unclear. But the thing I'm really interested in, like what could Amazon do if they really wanted to like go balls to the wall on this and like disrupt American healthcare? I'm really interested in Amazon as a healthcare supplier. I think, um, you know, one of the the things we've seen from their corporate behavior is a willingness to be very patient and not look for profits immediately. And I think there is some opportunity there for things that have been charged very opaquely, very difficult to understand the charges. There's huge, huge variation in prices that Amazon as a healthcare supplier could be a really interesting um, proposition. One of the things Amazon has done over the past few years kind of quietly is they've acquired pharmacy licenses in 12 different states. So they are like making some initial moves into um, not necessarily drug manufacturing, but into pharmacy. Um, I've heard some people raise the idea of Amazon pharmacies inside of Whole Foods, which is kind of weird and interesting. Um, But I'd be really interested in Amazon as a healthcare supplier or manufacturer, like an Amazon generic drug company is something that seems like it could actually disrupt American healthcare, but would be a much bigger venture. So those are kind of like the space. So there's a lot of space in this press release. I and think, those are the options. I've I seen. think a good place to, to to start thinking about this is what in the healthcare system could actually be changed, disrupted, or just changed because disrupted also has these more specific meanings that I don't think fit here by Amazon and JP Morgan and 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 Warren Buffett's company, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, because I think a lot can't be. And, and so I think that once you you step back a little bit, there's a pretty limited number of places for them to go that would have real macro impact. Now, could Amazon and, and that that consortium become a really big company? Sure, right? Could could they if they really put muscle into it, enter into the pharmaceutical side? It is totally possible. But when you really like back out. There is not that much that I see in the healthcare system that what it is waiting for right now, it, when you're trying to think about how it would change on the country level, what it is waiting for is some kind of technological interface solution or some kind of distribution network solution. And those are the things really that Amazon is good at. Um, a tremendous amount of healthcare is about this thing Amazon is actually not that good at and has been trying to like get away from in general, even though they've opened up a couple bookstores, which is... How do you push care at sick people whom it's a little bit hard to care for, right? So that's one thing. If you want to look at like big changes to American healthcare costs, how do we deal with the sickest people is a place to start. I don't see them doing much there. Now, is there the possibility of creating some kind of unified interface for um, employers trying to, to offer health insurance and, and and offering something that's in advance on what we have now, for sure. How much would that change American healthcare? I, I don't know how much it would change American healthcare. Are there opportunities in price transparency? Probably. Um, I, I think there definitely are there. But man, big corporate consortiums have been trying to do price transparency and quality for a long time. Like the LeapFrog group is a big, I mean, a lot of the push for price transparency and quality measurement has come from corporations in this country, from big groups of employers providing healthcare. And it's interesting and it's done some good stuff, but 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 it's only done so much. And then I do think it the final kind of big thing, although there's a lot of regulatory burden on this, is... Could they really aggressively get into the pharmaceutical game, either through generic production or somehow integrating what they do with Whole Foods, with blah, 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 blah? And I do think that is possible. I mean, there was certainly talk during the CVS Aetna merger that one of the things they were doing was trying to protect against the idea of Amazon coming in and upending their whole business. But I I don't know. From the consumer's perspective, I could see that being good, but it is hard to see how it will be transformative. But maybe I'm missing this. Oh, so a somewhat bullish case on this has to be a little nonspecific because the plan is nonspecific. But I think one thing that's important to understand about Amazon, right, the reason tech people, the reason people watch Amazon were excited about this is that what Amazon has done time and again, once upon a time, Amazon was a website. And it was a website in which you would file orders for books, right? And, and that was all it did, right? Then Amazon would take your order and it would actually place it to a book distributor, right? There's like two big warehouses. One of the reasons it was located in Seattle is that 
the West Coast regional like book distribution warehouse was kind of close to Seattle. And then they would get the books from the warehouse and then they would put the books in the mail and send it to your house, right? So the company was just this very thin website. And everything else that Amazon does has been based on first building a better tool so that it can do that service better. So that meant, for for example, Amazon Web Services, which is now their most profitable business. That's like all their computer backend stuff that almost every startup in the country runs on. That was originally they had to build better web hosting technology for themselves, and now they sell it, right? They eventually stopped ordering things from the central book warehouse, and they built better warehouses so they could distribute more efficiently. But then they started leasing warehouse space to other companies. They make some stuff themselves. They buy some stuff from third parties, but you can also just sell on Amazon as a platform. So I think to Amazon, the distinction between we're going to try to improve the healthcare situation for our employees and we're going to try to improve healthcare broadly is like not the applicable distinction. That's the one thing they're really good at, right? So that if they could get better at delivering healthcare to Amazon employees, who they're already on the hook for Amazon employees' healthcare, but if they could improve that, they're the kind of company that would then turn that outside. And because Amazon specializes in that kind of turn, you improve the internal tools and then you sell it to third parties, they are, in a sense, incentivized to work on that problem in a way that other companies haven't been, right? Like, large American employers from time immemorial have been a little frustrated with the healthcare situation, but the extent of the opportunity has always been a little bit limited because it's like, yeah, you know, we could improve things for ourselves and that would move forward at the margin, but it's not really our specialty. It's it's not our area of expertise. And the upside is the upside is only so big, right? Because your employees come and go. It's one of the problems with a fragmented system. But if you have the courage of your convictions, you can say, okay, if we can do self-insurance or something similar to self-insurance and we can do it way better, then we can sell it outside, then it's like it's really worth your while to, to dig in on, right? And that's where the, the partnership also becomes interesting because – Warren Buffett, the CEO, founder of Berkshire Hathaway, he's like the master of just random businesses, right? Like Berkshire Hathaway is famously just this like crazy conglomerate. It's like a big freight railroad, uh, but also Geico. Sees chocolate candies. Right. Um, and 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 he he like owns a large swath of American Express. And he's in the insurance business in a big way. Car insurance, uh, reinsurance, catastrophic stuff, but not in the health insurance space. It's like a notable gap in his sort of portfolio. And he is a big believer in owning insurance companies and then not trying to make a profit off the underwriting Right. So, you know, one thing you do with insurance is you pay a premium and then some people get a payout. And one way to make money in insurance is to make your premiums higher than what you pay out. Uh, But the way Buffett's insurance companies work is he just exploits the gap in the timing where, like, you pay first and you get paid out later. And that generates a momentary float in which, like, Warren Buffett has your money and it hasn't gone back out to any of his clients yet. And that float is invested. And that's where the profits come from. Right. So it's a guy. He has a he has a business model for a zero margin health insurance company, which just if that existed, it would be revolutionary. Just in the sense that it would destroy everybody else's profit margins. Um, so there's it's also how Amazon itself works, right. right? Well, Amazon's core retail business similarly does not have profits in a traditional sense, but it exploits the fact that if you buy something on Amazon, you pay Jeff Bezos right away. And then he only pays his suppliers a couple months later. Well, I just meant a little separately from that. One of the great innovations of Amazon, which is weird, is that somehow Wall Street does not care if they make profit. Yeah, I mean, the retail— It's like between Buffett not caring if his insurance companies make profit and Amazon seeming to actively dislike the idea of making more money than they spend— it just creates unusual incentives. Well, and so, so when Amazon bought Whole Foods, right, the stock price of competing grocery store chains immediately collapsed. Not, I think, because people felt there was a super specific way in which Amazon was going to transform grocery stores. But, like, they just – they cut prices right away. And, like, that's that's really bad. This is why I think pharmaceuticals are the most interesting place because this is where – it's an, if you are someone who does not care much about profits, that is an industry that has the highest profit margins in healthcare. If you actually look at health insurance, the margins aren't 
that good. Like they're three or four percent. Like right. they're they're there, but they're not great. And um, you know, it depends from pharmacy hands down has the highest margins. And sometimes they're quite high. If you think of, you know, the stories we've seen about jacking up generic prices, you could have a massive profit margin on um on a product that is not patented. That's why I think that's the place that has the most opportunity, but that's also limiting in a way. You know, pharmacy, it is, over the past few years, it has been the fastest growing segment of the healthcare system, meaning its costs are going up faster than hospitalization costs, than doctor visit costs, but it's still only about 10% of American healthcare spending. So we're still talking about a relatively small fraction of the market. But I think one of the things, the way drug pricing typically works is drug companies charge what they think the market can bear. So there is a, for example, there's a whole debate about this when um, a new hepatitis C drug called Savaldi came out a few years ago and um, its maker, Gilead, was charging, um, what was it? I think it was about um, $100,000 for a course of treatment. Now, this drug like did cure hepatitis C. It was a true breakthrough, big improvement in health costs, but it also led to a lot of Medicaid programs rationing the drug, only giving it to people when their hepatitis C was really advanced. I think I am very curious and like see the greatest space for innovation in like how how an Amazon Berkshire Hathaway company would have handled like if they were the ones who had Savaldi, like what would they be doing with it? And I don't actually know the answer to that. Um I think one of the things that's really tough about this, so, you know, going back to the press release, is they say they have this aim of improving employee satisfaction and reducing costs. That There, there is a good question about what reducing costs means. You know, Ezra, I know you've written about this idea that when policymakers say reducing costs, they often mean shifting costs onto consumers. When, when patients, like when I talk about reducing costs, I mean, I don't have a deductible or my copays are lower, and they're often at tension with each other. Um, you know, you you can reduce costs by reducing your network, going to the more efficient providers, but that's horrific for employee satisfaction. That's why you see, you know, I, I think a lot of inefficiencies is because like we like our doctors and we get angry if like Vox Media says you can't see your doctor, you know, anymore, Sarah, on our new health insurance plan. So I really like I, I think the way of satisfying those two, it, it seems like it'd have to be something on prices because if you're not dealing with prices, if you're dealing with network, if you're dealing with shifting the cost from one side to another, like there's no real way to address those two twin goals. But there's, so there's I, have a, I have a story I want to tell about this right now. Story um, time. Story time. So I, because <laughs> I, I think it does go to this point of like, what does it mean to reduce cost and for whom? So I needed on Friday a diagnostic test um, because my jaw is a total fucking mess. And so I was there at the ENT's office and they called uh, our insurer, which is Cigna. And so, you know, they asked Cigna, like, hey, can we authorize this test for, for, for Ezra? And Cigna said, sure, but we need to transfer you to our informed choice operation. And we we're like, what? Um, and so we, we got transferred over to the informed choice operation and somebody gets on the phone and then they say, well, okay, we're not in any way going to stand in the way of you getting this test, which is great, right? Thankfully, I can get the test. But we do want you to sit on the phone with us for a little while and hear how much it would be at a range of different places around Washington, D.C. Huh. Or farther away from Washington, D.C., as the case may be. And we're like, okay. Uh, and I was like sitting there and in pain and annoyed. And, you know, so I was like, okay, well, will this save me money? And the people are like, well, we can't tell you that. I was like, what do you mean you can't tell me that? I was like, <laughs> well, we can tell you how much the contracted rate is. I was like, okay, but how much will I pay? And like, that's a whole different department. I was like, are you seriously sitting there here on the phone with me telling me that um, you're going to tell me all these prices, but you're not going to tell me how much I will pay? And and the reason, and I, I'm sympathetic to them here, um, the reason is like the way the insurance is constructed that's actually not how it works, right? Like I just pay a certain percentage or a certain copay or whatever it is. You know, this for happens all, for all for all services of this kind. I have to go through this process right. with Signet but too. They it want was... to save money, but they don't have any good lever on me to do it. And so then eventually it's like, just authorize the test for me. And then they just had a robocall on me for five days. They called me 10 times and finally I picked it up. And then they're like, they put me on hold so I could talk to an informed choice specialist about something that had now already happened. Like it was so ridiculous as a way of saving money, but it's in part because the incentives are, are a little bit messed up on all sides. And so the, the, the reason I bring that up in this context, in addition to what, what Sarah was saying about 
there often being a disconnect about who is trying to save money and how at any given moment. And so it's like Cigna wants to save money, but the way they would save money is by me scheduling an appointment for something I could have gotten and did get done then, getting it done instead later at a place that is much further away. With a doctor you don't know. With a doctor I don't know. There's there's literally no advantage for me in this whole situation at all. So that is a that that is like a system that is not logically making a ton of sense. And if you want to, I think, read the really like bullish case for the Amazon JP Berkshire project, Ben Thompson at Stratechery had had a good piece. And he, and he was saying that, look, basically Amazon's goal, healthcare is 17.9 roughly percent of the economy. They want to skim that, right? They want some amount of that money going to Amazon. And so what has happened is that like this is a healthcare as a sector where it's clear that it is not working in an integrated way, where it is clear that it's not working in a technologically sophisticated way, particularly as healthcare benefits are provided by employers. Nobody has dominated that market at all. It's extremely fractured. And so like if you just are really patient, because it takes you got to be solvent for a while to try to get into these markets. Um, and a lot of people go bust before like the changes happen. But if you're patient, like you can sit there, wait for the old order to collapse, and like maybe Amazon and Berkshire and JP Morgan with their kind of mixture of like insurance expertise, endless money, access to capital markets, and technological capacity could become this new layer, basically creating a marketplace for employers to get pharmacy benefits, to get insurance, and it can just grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's all pretty interesting as a business story. And, and what I was thinking about reading this was that when you describe that and you're looking at it from the pers- from the perspective of like the business side, like, oh yeah, that could definitely, if it worked, which is a very big if, make Amazon and JP and Berkshire really rich. And on the other hand, when you're talking about the things people think about in healthcare, right? Like, can I get healthcare? Like how much ultimately will my healthcare cost, which is driven, as you were saying in the Savaldi situation, by drugs and what the market will bear for them. Um, When we talk about healthcare, like in the policy context, we normally do on the weeds, we are asking so much more fundamental questions than which companies are going to get to like cream skim because they're going to create a somewhat better um, informational layer on top of what's going on. And so there's just like, it's like this funny thing trying to evaluate this. A massive success on this would probably mean a somewhat better and even possibly uh, for a while at least a somewhat cheaper um, layer between employers and employees in the healthcare system. And like maybe some of the nonsense would get taken out. But in terms of like would American healthcare become like it is in other countries where you like don't have to worry about it and you can just get the insurance you need uh, and, and the care you need? The answer is no. Right. I mean, I, I do think it, it's critical to remember, right, that like the policy problems of healthcare have to do with like what happens to people who the, like the poorest people and the sickest people. Like that's what that's what like the problem is. The business opportunity in yep. healthcare is like, People who are not poor and not necessarily people who are super sick, but just people with like, you need to see the doctor sometimes, right? And because the healthcare system is so heavily shaped by policy, there's like this big blah mass of like roughly average income people with roughly average health status who have frustrating experiences with the healthcare system and who also spend a lot of money on it. And there's like a market there, right? Like, that's where just a lot of money is. And none of the companies involved in that space, like, neither Cigna nor any other, not to, that just happens to be our insurance company, but, like, there's no beloved health insurance company, right? There's no iconic brand in the health insurance space. I think we are all fans of Kaiser Permanente, but it, there's nobody who, like, stands out. There's no, like, hospitals that people love, right? It's just, like, kind of a bummer. That's not true, I think. People, I think that's true, ho- like Cleveland Clinic. Cleveland Clinic, May- Mayo. They're able to license their name out to other hospitals. All right, well, no, that's true. That's true. I, 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 and interesting, I, I, I would say the one insurer that, and not a private one, right. I think Medicare has a great reputation. Yes, Medicare has a strong reputation, but what people like about Medicare is that it's so infinitely flexible, right? Mm-hmm. That like what you, because Sarah was talking about this, you want to choose your own doctors and blah, blah, blah. Like the way to obtain efficiencies in the system would be for an insurance company to exist that people were really enthusiastic about, such that if that insurance company turned around to providers and was like, Mm -hmm. fuck you, you're either cutting your prices or you're out, 
the provider would be like afraid because the customer loyalty would reside with like Awesome Insurance Co. And people just like, they love Awesome Insurance, right? And then it feeds on itself because if providers know that patients really love this insurance company and are like really wedded to sticking with it, then the insurance company gets a lot of leverage over the providers, can really make things cheaper, which like makes it all the awesomer. But like nobody has ever made that turn, right? So instead you have this situation where it's like everybody's just mad all the time, right? Like the prices are high, your insurance company's like giving you robocalls, trying to get you to like drive out to Gaithersburg. And like it, it's just like a shitty situation. I don't know that there's any reason to think that any of the companies in this space can like have off the shelf an awesome solution to this, right? Like insurance company, if insurance companies knew of some way to earn more customer loyalty than individual doctors have, like they would be, they would be doing it already. Uh, the the dynamics of the situation are are so likely that like you are going to feel more uh, bonds of connection with the people who are trying to help you with your health problems than with the voice on the phone. It's like trying to tell you you don't need this test. That it's it's sort of hard to hard to square there. But but I just think the reality is that even if it worked really well, right, as a business proposition, even if you had like an insurance company that everybody wanted to sign on with, it's just not clear that that would do anything about like the problem that poor people or people with chronic healthcare conditions or elderly people with long-term care needs. Like, it, it just, it wouldn't address the, like, corners of the market where needs are severe. When I, one question I have, like, when you raise this idea, I think why there isn't an awesome insurance co. is that hospitals have a lot of leverage, particularly when they're the only hospital in town. Right. So if you want to run awesome insurance co. and, like, like, you could probably pull this off in, um, you know, like a large urban area that has a lot of different hospital centers. But again, then like, you you know, if you want to cut like Cleveland Clinic out, this is something that actually came up a lot with the launch of the Obamacare marketplaces where you saw health insurance companies. They didn't have like, they were not known as awesome right. yet. But you had like the brand name one saying, I remember in Seattle, there was a ba- battle over Seattle Children's Hospital and they were charging high prices. Would it be included in network? Um, but often if you're looking at a more rural area increasingly you know there's there's nowhere else to go there's no place for like awesome insurance co to take their business unless they're going to tell people like oh now you have to drive two hours to the next hospital so i think in a lot of ways hospitals the system maintains a lot of leverage for hospitals i think that's why you see such high prices and you haven't seen anyone like crack this in the way that Matt is talking about cracking this. Um, well, I think, I mean, imagine what awesome insurance coat would have, right? I think this is very straightforward and it shows the misaligned incentives in healthcare perfectly. It's like, what would make you love your insurance company? The insurance company you would love would have extremely low prices, right? It would be like really affordable. Cover everything. <laughs> it would cover everything. Right. Right. What would make you hate awesome insurance co is if you had hepatitis C, but there's a pill that could literally cure your hepatitis C, but they don't cover Savaldi. And like, you're just... Or no, they make you go through this big clinical review and you're found like... like or that whatever, is like right? What like, yeah, I mean, doing. there are different levels of it. But yes. maybe they just say no, that this thing's too expensive. But like, then you're not going to like Awesome Insurance Co. at all. And so the thing that is interesting to me about um, the insurance market that, that, that gives me some sympathy for, for insurers, but I think is also sort of the argument for why you should just have the government insure everybody and set prices, is that uh, the thing that makes insurance cheap is saying no. The thing that makes insurance unpopular is saying no. And so like insurers are in this like kind of crazy bind where on the one hand, if they say no to stuff, there'll be this huge backlash. I mean, in the 90s, HMOs really did bring down the cost of healthcare in this country. Like that really happened. And if you look at the research on that period, there's no evidence at all that anybody's health was harmed by this. I mean, it, it seems to be the case that they brought down prices, like they, you know, narrowed networks and made you go through reviews and all this stuff. And more or less, like our, our, our health was fine throughout. And I'm not saying they're not, you cannot find an individual case. I'm sure you can, but but the, the aggregate research, it, it looks pretty good. And people hated them. I mean, there were movies that had rants against HMOs and people would clap in the theater. I think it was as good as it gets, if I'm remembering this correctly. The HMO thing was unwound, not because 
it was unsuccessful, but because people hated it. And so since then, insurers have been trying to figure out, okay, well, how do you keep prices down without saying no to stuff? And eventually they decided, well, what if you just don't keep prices down? Like just see if people keep paying double digit price increases every year. And it turned out that in a lot of cases, and particularly in, in the employer-based market, they will. And, and there's really an answer on that. I mean, it, it gets to my experience with Cigna where they're like trying to come to me and be like, we don't want to say no to this, right? If, if we say no to you getting um, this diagnostic at the place you want to get it, you're going to be mad and you're going to go to like your HR department. Your HR department's going to yell at us or maybe like go to someone else. But on the other hand, like if they don't say no to the more expensive option and just send me out to um, uh, Chevy Chase or whatever, then how are they going to save money? It, it's a pretty serious bind, which I'm not sure there's an answer for inside the system. There's an answer for if there's one insurer and the insurer is setting prices. And like, again, this is how Medicare works. And I don't think it's accidental that Medicare is a is much better like the most private insurance. I think there's an answer. So like going back to Amazon, like the answer to me, like it goes back to like why I was talking about drugs in the first place. It's like all about the prices, in like every other country, you know, the, one of the ways they deal with this is by regulating the prices that are charged for different things. And it is hard for me to see like how we have this like breakthrough disruption, you know, healthcare becomes more affordable without doing something about um, pricing. Like I have a story coming out tomorrow about um, I've been running this emergency room billing project for the past few months where we've had over a thousand people send us their ER bills. And one of the things I started noticing in there was the crazy high price of rabies treatment in America. I heard from multiple families who are in thousands of dollars of medical debt after they had an encounter with a bat, had to get rabies treatment because rabies is always fatal. And then were billed, you know, between three to $19,000 for this one drug you need for rabies exposure. And it's like until... So if an Amazon like wants to like be a rabies drug manufacturer and they don't care, you know, they're going to charge what the price is in England, which is about $1,600, that seems like it could it could matter and it could change things and it could reduce prices in a way that's not putting more of a burden on consumers or putting more of a burden on the premiums and the insurance company. But I think like until you get to the prices, we kind of just run around in circles. But that won't work until you're dealing with um, drugs that are off patent. Right. As right. long as long as you're dealing with something new that people want, Amazon can't just go manufacture it because whatever, Pfizer holds the patent. And so then there are these things, right? This is where what was that asshole's name? Martin Shikrelli. Shikrelli. Like he he found a couple places where there was like a drug that some people needed, but not many people. And it did, so like their need for it was really intense, but there was like not much market interest in providing the drug. And so he realized like that was an inefficiency and he could jack up the prices, which is what he did. And so there's some stuff like that, right? Maybe rabies is like that. I, I, I'm looking forward to reading the story. But that's like not the story of most of them. When there's a lot of demand for the drug, there's already a lot of generics, right? I'm on an antibiotic right now because like really like everything has been terrible for a couple of weeks. And it's not expensive because it's a generic antibiotic, right? Like a lot of people want this antibiotic and so people make it. So I just, I, I see the logic of this and I, I definitely see how Amazon, if they just decided like not to make profit and to offer like better buying interfaces, could have an effect on the margin. But in the end, like if somebody invents a cure for, I don't know, name your terrible disease that afflicts people. If somebody invents a new hyper-effective form of chemotherapy or a, like a pill you can take that prevents heart disease, people are going to want to pay for it. And like if Amazon goes to those folks and says, no, 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 you got to offer this for a reasonable price, they're going to say, screw off. We're not. Well, so here's the the irony, right? I mean, the the whole Amazon disruption thing, right? The Ben Thompson's optimistic case, it's all it's all built around the idea that Amazon enters a market, it provides a great customer experience, it provides zero profit margins, and it obtains a monopoly-esque position in that market, which it then turns back around to squeeze its suppliers. Then because the suppliers are squeezed, its monopoly position on the other side gets even more entrenched, right? That's like Amazon and ebooks, it's it's Amazon and everything. And that's like the great free market hope for healthcare. But that's also just exactly what government-run insurance systems do, right? Like in Canada, they like also have the problem that a drug might cure hepatitis C and the drug maker is going to reasonably say, hey, this is very valuable. You should pay us a lot of money for it. And the citizens of Canada will be like, yeah, we would like that drug. But because the Canadian government, well, actually, this is a bad example. Canada doesn't cover Britain's pharmaceuticals. A good one. Britain, the NHS. right? Right. So the, the NHS, they are like, they have a monopoly on pharmaceuticals in the UK. So it's not like they can, 
there's a bargaining process, but they have a lot of leverage over the pharmaceutical companies to say, like, no, you got to lower your price. Like, if you lower your price, you'll have all these customers. Or and, Medicare in the United States. Right. Is Medicare has some of it. Of right. This. And it's just like, that is the proven model of doing this. It's like, you can maybe, if you squint and wish and pray, like, imagine Amazon securing the kind of position in the marketplace that, like, a standard government-run insurance program has. But, like, you could also do it, right? And then you could say, like, well, why don't we have a government-run, like, internet retailer, right? Like, why did we leave that to the private sector? And, like, (laughs) the reason is, like, we had no fucking idea how you would build a (laughs) government-run internet retailer. But, like, we really know how you would build a government-run insurance system. It would be pretty American if we ended up with a single-payer system run by Amazon. Sure, (laughs) right. I mean, you know, right— we could just like go 50-50 between the government and Jeff Bezos on a monopoly insurance provider, but that would be odd. Speaking of exciting uh, news and capitalism, well, let's take, we a break, take a break and then we'll have capitalism. I love learning and, and you know what? My love of learning, it didn't just go away when, when I finished school. There's a lot of areas that interest me, stuff I want to know more about. Um, then it's got to be the same for you if, if you listen to the weeds. And, and that's one reason why you got to check out The Great Courses Plus. I, I really love it. If you haven't signed up yet, I mean, what are you waiting for? It's an amazing way to learn from leading professors and experts about anything that interests you. Uh, it's history, science, philosophy, music. Uh, but you can even like learn a new language. You can learn how to draw. I cannot learn how to draw. It's impossible. But but you could learn how to draw. Um I have learned a lot about history. Uh, it gives you unlimited access to thousands of lectures. You can watch videos from any device, or you can do it like podcast style with the Great Courses Plus app. Uh, so one really cool cool course to check out is Outsmart Yourself, Brain-Based Strategies to a Better You. Um, so this is about, like, you know, your mind, it's, it's a machine. It's, it's a biological mechanism. And they look through, like, great scientifically proven brain hacks that we should all know. Like, like how do you stop procrastination? Very counterintuitive. But if you're, if you're like, working away, it's like you're not making any progress, you're procrastinating. Just do nothing. Do nothing for 20 minutes. It, it's, like a, it's like a reboot. It's like, have you tried turning it on and off again? But for your mind. It'll get you back on task. It's really cool. Um, so I know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus. Uh, they think you're going to love it, too. That's why they're giving you a free trial with unlimited access to enjoy all their lectures. Uh, you just got to go to our special URL. So start exploring today. You sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Yesterday, there was this enormous stock market crash. Uh, The Dow fell by the largest percentage amount ever. Uh, Then in the overnight trading, it went uh, even worse, Uh, sort of bounced back this morning, and now it's down again as of the time we are recording. I would say one big takeaway from this is that, like, we're recording this podcast now. It's 1043 a.m. It will take hours before this comes out. And I really have no idea whether by the time you listen to this, the market will have crashed again or rebounded or not. And that's, like, the most important thing to remember in coverage is that, like, whatever happened over the previous 24 hours and whatever smart analysis of it you may have— it really does not convey any information about what's going to happen the next day, right? Like, the one, the only thing we really know about stocks is that over the long term, they go up more often than they go down. But, like, in a short time horizon, like, anything could happen. There was one point yesterday when I think the market went down 500 points in, like, literally three minutes, and then back up again. Like, we were trying to have a Slack conversation about should somebody write about this, and it had just vanished. In the- so can I ask, I have a dumb question. Yeah. Why? Why, why is this happening? <sighs> Nobody knows. Yeah, Matt. I want to say, say one reason that I don't think it is happening, that I saw kicked around frequently. Um, so we had a good jobs report on Friday, pretty good, and it showed wages going up. And when wages start to rise and, and jobs are good, uh, you might see more interest rate increases from the Fed, and that could drive stock prices down. So I so I saw a lot of people sort of kicking that around as a high-level explanation. I, I feel pretty confident that, that is not what happened, only because Every stock market all around the world was down, and also things like the price of oil was down, the price of metals was down. Um, That's not 
there's no reason why, like, the American labor market adding jobs a little bit faster than people thought, so maybe interest rates will go up a little bit faster than people thought, should make the price of aluminum crash, right? If everything goes down, that's because the vague investment Borg just got a little bit more pessimistic <laughs> than it had been the previous Animal day spirits. about <laughs> things in general, right? Yeah. And I mean, so one question people were asking me, like, holiday season was like, well, if it's not thanks to Trump, like, how come the stock market went up so much? And I was like, I don't know. Uh, but if the stock market had gone up 3% less than it had, people would have asked the same question, right? People wouldn't have been like, aha, this slightly smaller run-up in stocks makes perfect sense to me, right? So if you think about it like, well, it went up a lot and then it went down some, but what if it had just gone up at a slower pace, right? Like, who, who, so, who is to say? So there was this uh, Axios Morning email a couple weeks ago now, and it was talking about how Donald Trump has begun using the stock market as like his own mental polling for his administration. Yeah. Right. Like he looks at stock market and it's like it's like a poll of the economy about how great he is making America. Yeah. And every day it's in record territory because like until a week ago we had been in record territory. And so just every day America is greater than it has ever been before because like the American stock market, also other stock markets all around the world, yes. but that doesn't get mentioned, uh, is going up. And one thing that I would just note about this— one, the stock market is not the economy. The stock market is not the economy. The stock market is not the economy. The stock oh, market is. is not the economy. It really <laughs> isn't. You can have a good stock market and not have good wages. You could have a good stock market and like have softness in the labor market. Um, I, I think it's really important to, to, to separate those out a bit, uh, particularly in its day-to-day -day fluctuations. But the other thing is, it is not a good idea uh, for any um, presidential administration, this one or any other, to base too much of their sell on where the stock market is at any given moment. Because like, imagine it's November of 2018 and you just, you have a bad week, right? You have like a big sell-off week. That might not reflect anything in particular in the economy. But if you've really predicated your argument on like the stock market's been going great, that's going to be really bad for you. Stock markets are, are, are super volatile. And one of the things in the background of everything is risk, right? It's it's the stock market's estimation of long-term risk, of short-term risk, of whether a war with North Korea is likely, of whether America is going to enter a constitutional crisis, of whether wages are going to go up, or whether the Federal Reserve is going to change what it's doing, of whether Europe is going to be able to manage its refugee flows in a way that doesn't create systemic risks across the continent. And like, I'm naming some geopolitical risks, but obviously the more salient ones are just the endless series of economic questions that are happening all the time. We just did a long segment on Amazon. As soon as that news came out, uh, the, the stock of Anthem and United dropped 5%. Just a lot happens all the time. And I think it's one reason that people should not overweight the stock market in sort of in compressed periods, right? You want to think, oh, how's it doing over six months? How's it doing over a year? Uh, but also, I think it is I think it is dangerous for the Republican Party that so much of their current argument has been the stock market is great and also Carter Page is a wonderful guy who we think probably should not have been surveilled. I think basing too much of your political future on like stock market volatility and Carter Page's trustworthiness and not being a Russian asset is like not a good idea. I want to make my case for Donald Trump relying on the stock market as the sole gauge of his success because my understanding is that inside the White House, the argument, oh no, that will tank stock markets has been a powerful force restraining Trump from doing some of his more, indulging some of his more crazy trade policy That's ideas. a reasonable <laughs> idea. So I think I, I think they should, they should stick to that. I, I also think it's obvious that starting a war with North Korea would be would be devastating to financial markets. Uh, the Korean stock market has been in record territory, South Korean, and so you know don't don't blow up Seoul, uh, don't start a trade war with China. But it kind of feels like the stock market is like almost like of, of course it is the indicator. Trump likes because it's like flashy. It's constantly changing. Like yes. you have entire news, like CNBC is just like basically a news network that is devoted to the stock market. So like when the Amazon announcement comes out, like they are, they have all their people on there and they're analyzing what's going on with United, what's going on with Anthem, what's going on with Amazon. Like it feels oh, yeah. like, of, of course it is like the metric that is, that is, um, it, it's shiny in a way that like, I don't know, wage growth, you know, jobs only come out every once a month and, it, and it's on this like BLS website that like has, you know, no bells or whistles. Like, oh, of plus course, it has a margin of error. It has, right. And then it gets revised and it's kind of like, I, like who wants to deal with like those kind of borings, but like pretty solid statistics. Like, of course, the 
the stock market feels like the the economic indicator that President Trump, like knowing what we know about his personality, would gravitate towards. Right. It's worth saying the stock market itself obviously does some valuable capital allocation purposes, but in a in a broader sense, the coverage of it is very much the reality show yes. of economic coverage. And like, so yeah, like the reality show president loves like the reality show economic indicator where it's like, there's like arrows up and down all the time and stuff is always happening. And like, charts, know, like lines nobody knows up, why lines do you, like everything's <laughs> acting irrationally. It's, it, it, it all, it all, it but all so does make sense. I, I do think it is true that the stock market is not the economy and this is like a big, like liberal talking point. Um, Man, but, Matt. But I, no, no, no. I mean, it's, it's true. It's true. But I I, I think... Um, Do conservatives Ro- believe it is the economy? No, but who knows what they believe. Um, Ro- Roger Farmer's book, uh, Prosperity for All, um, and I guess his earlier book, How the Economy Works, although I haven't read that one, but I assume he agrees with himself about this. Um, they He makes a pretty strong case that strong market valuations over the medium term are an important driver of business investment activity, right? That like when corporate stock is high, it encourages investment in startups because that's like how you like make more stock. Um, and it encourages companies that that have high valuations to invest more. And he argues, he has a pretty good, I think, statistical argument that this is true, even though the arguments that Doug Henwood makes in his book, Wall Street, where he he shows pretty convincingly that companies don't actually raise money in the stock market to invest. Uh, but Farmer shows it, it correlates quite strongly with, with investment. So when you saw this big run-up in 2017 to the stock market, it gave some reason to believe that, okay, in 2018, this, like, Trump boom that has been, like, largely mythical or, like, just on paper in the stock market is going to become a real thing. That companies are going to say, okay, these years of, like, just finding well-qualified unemployed workers off the street are, like, over, right? There's not that many jobless people left anymore. And now to, like, drive my business forward, I need, like, awesome machines or new technology, like, big investments I'm going to make that's going to drive productivity forward. It's going to drive wages forward. It's going to, like, push us into the new frontier. I, I wasn't, like, 100% certain this is going to happen, but that was one plausible interpretation of that run-up. If the stock market just, like, crashes and it's like, nah, we got too enthusiastic, that's, like, a good sign that, like, no, that that is not going to happen, that the drip, drip, drip recovery that Trump inherited from Obama is going to just keep drip, drip, dripping along. And, like, I do think that that matters, right? Like, this has been, it's gotten, like, very partisan. If we're, like, Democrats who also thought the recovery was weak, like, until Trump started bragging about her, now, like, ah, you just got Obama's recovery. And, like, it's true. Like, he just got Obama's recovery, which was weak. And we've been, like, waiting, like, will there be a breakthrough? And the stock market boom was some reason to think that we we maybe would get one. And if the stock market collapses, that means, like, we probably won't. That doesn't mean, like, we need to all go on CNN and, like, clap louder for the Dow. But, like, we need, we need to make the economy better. All right. I think Sarah's leaving us now. I got to go. If I'm not wrong. Ugh, yeah, she has real work to do. Paper. But, but we've, go got, we've got what Matt would like us to call a research paper. Yes. <laughs> that, now that, that I'm out discuss. of the room, everything's changing. Oof, man. Life is changing. Yeah. So we got today a, a paper that it's not like shocking in its conclusion, but it's a good quantification. It's by James Feigenbaum, Alexander Hertel Fernandez, and Vanessa Williamson. And it's looking at what happens in politics when states pass right to work laws. Uh, they exploit AM. Um, What's a right to work law, Matt? A right to work law says that a union and an employer cannot make a contract that requires everybody in the bargaining unit to pay a sort of uh, representation fee to the union, right? So that's a, a standard in a pro-union state. You will have a union shop where you don't have to join the union in order to work there because, you know, constitution, freedom, et cetera. But since you are going to be covered by the collective bargaining, you need to pay a representation fee to the union. Uh, so that's a way of giving unions clout. Uh, with, without representation fees, there's a huge collective action problem. It's hard to maintain large-scale union membership. You have this big free rider problem. Exactly. It's easy to join the – it's easy to join in and like, well, you're already getting the negotiated wages. Why put right. any so of your money towards dues? dues yeah. Right. Because um, it's that you're just paying dues. Um, so right-to-work laws come in. They, they – 
do this thing, you know, they look at counties on either side of a state border that are typically exposed to similar economic and political trends. I thought this was really clever because what they say, and it's correct, is that there's differences between states that pass right-to-work laws and don't, so just comparing those doesn't really work. But counties that are right next to each other on borders, those are probably more similar than, like, the states are to each other at all. Right. Um, And I I thought that was, like, a well—it's, like, a nice little natural experiment. Yeah, and this is—you know, it's an interesting sort of methodological propagation from the minimum wage literature now into into the right-to-work literature. And so they show that uh, it is bad for Democrats. Uh, The Democratic presidential vote share falls by 3.5%. You see something similar for Senate, House, and governor's races, something similar for state legislative control. Turnout also falls when right-to-work laws pass. And then they look at the causal mechanisms for this. Um, You get fewer labor campaign contributions to Democrats. And in particular, you get fewer uh, voter contacts. That one thing labor unions do a lot of where they are strong is they find people who seem likely to vote for Democrats but maybe marginally attached to the political process. They get in touch with them. They say like, hey, you know, you got to vote for this guy some reasons. Um, And they are moderately effective at actually doing that. Uh, You pass a right-to-work law and then the union – It gets weaker, it has fewer resources, and also it has to target its resources more narrowly at sustaining itself, sustaining its own membership inside the organization, and uh, Republicans do better. Um, This is not like blow-your-mind kind of stuff. I mean, I think most people would say, like, this is one of the reasons why Republicans like to pass right-to-work laws, also one of the reasons why Democrats try to not uh, you know, tr- try to stop them from passing them. Um, but it's it's useful to see, like, a real quantification of the effect. And it also is. the magnitude here is big. Like, you would say, like, Donald Trump won Wisconsin and Michigan because those states passed right-to-work laws during the Obama presidency. Right. I mean, that is, if you, if you, if you take this literature seriously, and I think it's worth doing. Uh, one thing I don't know is, and, and this might actually be in here and I just missed it, is what is the time frame on which this operates? Like, does it operate like the year after you pass the right to work law or is it, you know, on a, over time things change and, you know, the union's powers begin to erode. And and, and so in, in terms of whether or not it is literally responsible for the 2016 election due to recent right to work law changes, who knows? Um, they, they, they might. I just, I just do not remember this uh, question from the paper. But yes, 3.5 percentage points is a big difference. The, the thing that I think is interesting about this paper, and just that it should get one thinking about, is loops of political power. And what I mean by that is, look, like in, in this country right now, if you're the Republican Party, I think it is reasonable to look at the situation and say, we have a lot of political power but don't actually seem to have comparatively that many voters. Since 2000, 40% of presidential elections have been won by the loser of the popular vote, in both cases Republicans. The Senate is currently held by a party that had fewer overall votes for its senators than than the Democrats did. And while that's not true for the House, it is true that the expectation is Democrats would have to win somewhere in the range of six percentage percentage points more in the popular vote than Republicans will. And so one thing that – so one thing that Republicans have right now is political power, but also, you know, looking forward, like some real demographic and, and popular vote issues. And one way you might rationally respond to that if you don't care that much about abstract democratic values is to begin passing laws that just make it harder for the other party to compete, that that erode their structural advantages, right? To work laws are one, obviously aggressive forms of gerrymandering are another, voter ID laws are another. You could do things with money in different states that are, are, are another. And I think the Republican Party is doing this. Um, They're doing it all over. There's, uh, in Pennsylvania, a judge just, a court just knocked down their really, really, really intense gerrymandering. And there is now a um, effort, at least among one Republican legislator, to try to impeach that judge. Uh, You've had a lot of voter ID pushes across the country from Republicans. So it's one way in which a minority, uh, a popular vote minority can maintain political power by actually just changing the rules of the game with that political power to weaken their competitors. Um, and, and here you see, like, in a pretty straightforward way, it works. Like, there are other reasons people might like or dislike right-to-work laws, but definitely one thing happening here is a political power fight, and that political power fight has, like, clear effects in the way that we would have thought they would, in the way that both parties believe they do, and in a way that 
also helps explain the centrality of this to, to, to many Republican state agendas. But the other thing I would say is that the, the flip side of this research is that it's a big it's a big problem for labor unions in some ways that like mm-hmm. if you were talking about a state legislative debate, right, if people were arguing in the Iowa state legislature like – hey, a bunch of you just voted for Republican state legislators because, I don't know, some of you think abortion should be illegal. Some of you are frustrated with Obama's handling of the economy. Some of you are subconsciously driven by the growing racial polarization of the United States. And now this is like new Republican majority. And they're saying, oh, we want to pass a right-to-work law. And now Democrats in the legislature need to make arguments that are going to, like, not pass this right-to-work law. An argument like, this is going to reduce your wages, right? Like, that's that's good. That makes sense. You might believe that. You might not believe it. But, you know, if you convince them, an argument like, oh, this is going to make it harder for me to win elections. Like, that's terrible. That's a terrible argument, right? And it's a really good argument that, like, no, man, like, if Republicans got this transitory majority because people were concerned about Obama's handling of the economy, they should definitely take action to curb union representation rights, right? That, like, this is not, like, a question of fundamental fairness in the workplace, but, like, of raw partisan politics where you've got to go. They mention in the paper that in an earlier era, right, that pre-1980, when the parties were less polarized and the geographical spread was bigger, there was less um, less reason to believe that there would be this kind of strict partisan impact, that Southern Democrats were very anti-union because unions were pro-integration, that there were union-friendly Republicans from strong union states, and that unions would try to help candidates who they thought would advance their agenda. They were important to politics, but they weren't important in the same way to partisanship, and partisanship itself was not as important to politics. And so it was a lot easier in some ways to, like, see the union question as, like, an autonomous sphere of social activity, whereas now it's like, look, if you if you love guns and you hate abortions, you, like, you sort of have to hate labor unions, too. But that doesn't work as, like, a workplace. I, or it's fine. You know, we there was recently union organizing at, at Vox Media, uh, which I think probably very few of the employees of this company love guns and and hate abortions, so it didn't become an issue. But like when Volkswagen was trying to organize a plant in Tennessee, the fact that the United Auto Workers is seen rightly as like in part just an arm of Democratic Party politics is not like great when you're trying to organize plants in the South. And this goes both ways. I mean, it's worth noting that the conversation we're having about um, union right-to-work laws is a conversation uh, that you hear on the right a lot about immigration policy, right? The view that if you create a pathway to citizenship or you 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 give dreamer citizenship, that that's really what is really happening there as a Democratic Party creating out of whole cloth like millions of new voters for itself who will reshape American politics forever. That's a I mean, you regularly see that conversation happening in in in, in Republican circles. A bit similarly, it's not really like the front, like public facing conversation. Like you kind of see it like Republican to Republican outlets talking about it, but 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 it's not sort of like Paul Ryan doesn't like get up to the um podium and say like the problem with legalizing dreamers would be that they would vote for Democrats because <laughs> Donald Trump um is a, as a president is believed to not very much like Hispanic people like that that's not the argument they make but but it is a way this the way this happens and and so I think the broad point you're making is right that there are a lot of issues in American politics that have this sort of quiet background uh, like there's like one argument that is happening in the front often it's a very real part of the argument I mean it should be said that the 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 arguments people say they're having over right to work laws are really part of the like a big yeah, yeah, part yeah. of the argument being had over right to work laws. Some of the argument being had over immigration, I think, is a central argument over immigration. Um, but they also have these like background effects on political power uh, that end up ma- sometimes making it like a little hard to see what's going on, and also making it more existential for. Uh, one party or the other to find a way to really oppose that where maybe otherwise they would feel less strongly about it or be more willing to make a compromise on it or, or whatever it might be. So now here's an interesting question is that what's been studied here primarily is states that had been union-friendly states 
the Republicans took over and then they passed right-to-work laws. Uh, For various demographic and whatever reasons, there are several states that have traditionally been conservative states that have had right-to-work laws for decades where it is plausible that Democrats could take control in the near future. Uh, Nevada, Democrats control both houses of the legislature. There's a very popular moderate incumbent Republican governor who is term-limited out. Um, so Democrats could get the the trifecta there very plausibly. Republicans have a very narrow majority in the Colorado State Senate. That's a state where Democrats have gained a ton of ground over the past 15 years. Uh, Virginia, both houses of legislature in Republican hands, uh, but the state GOP seems to be somewhat in a state of, of collapse. You could imagine Democrats gaining there. So the question is, is will Democrats play offense on this issue in those kinds of states, right? In states where unions are weak, are they going to pass legislation that tries to call into existence stronger labor unions? Uh, Traditionally, they have really, really shied away from that, right? That there was a big spurt of union organizing, basically the World War II era, and then there was some pro-union legislation passed, and that was the high watermark. And like since the 50s, it's been all downhill. Um, And it has – it has hurt. Democrats, particularly in the Midwest, but it hasn't like crushed progressive politics. And in some ways, I mean— Although it's hard to say the counterfactual exactly. Yes. But I mean, 10 years ago when, you know, unions were in decline, I mean, one expectation that I had was that like if labor unions keep withering, particularly in the private sector, the Democratic Party will sort of increase its like neoliberal turn on economics, right? And the opposite has happened. Right. Democrats are more left wing, just like conceptually on like we need to tax the rich, more open to single payer health care, more open to free college, you know, than they were 10, 10 years ago, uh, despite weaker labor unions. And it raises the prospect that Democrats in weak union states would actually consider passing pro-union legislation, which they didn't do throughout the whole second half of the 20th century, and that would have this sort of reverse entrenchment effect, right? That like suddenly you could go from Colorado being a state that tilts toward Democrats to a state that like really has a heavy blue lean if there was union organization. Although one, one reason I'm, I'm skeptical of that happening is that I, I think when you look into the, the guts of this paper and, and you begin to look at the mechanisms they're positing, I mean, what they basically say is that in states that pass a right to work law, the amount of money unions could spend on democratic organizing and get out the vote and the rest of it goes down. And the Democratic parties are not able to replace that money. If Democratic parties, which do rely substantially on corporate donations still, right, donations from people who work at corporations, I mean, they're they're rich supporters of of Democrats in all of these uh, states. You know, the Democratic Party often exists in an equilibria with its corporate supporters. You know, there are some people who support single payer, but there's a lot of other stuff going on too. And, 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 you know, there are, you know, identity issues that matter a lot and environmental issues. And there are places where like rich people disagree with Democrats. I mean, it's complicated. Obviously corporate money favors Republicans, but it's not overwhelmingly there. But corporations see union organizing in their corporation as existential. Oh yeah. In a way they don't even see like a tax change as existential. And so what Democrats would be dealing with there is that in between like here and more democratic future where unions have a bit more money to spend on them is massive corporate backlash. And, and I think you see, you know, Obama came in in 2008, one of the like every Democrat in Congress had promised to prioritize the Employee Free Choice Act, which would have uh, a, a mandated card check elections nationwide. And Democrats just like did not push that. Um, like that just collapsed very quickly. And right. I think what – in my sense of what happens with Democrats is that they look at this issue and like they game out the corporate backlash given how they in fact fund elections. And it's like like the math for them like doesn't work out or they're not willing to take take the short-term hit. I would just say it's like since the 2016 primary, right, there has clearly been like a vibrant desire to have like a vicious – brutal fight between the, like, Bernie Sanders wing and Hillary Clinton wing of of the Democratic Party. And I have not actually (laughs) seen a subject on which it makes sense to have that kind of fight, right? But a real thing where, like, for exactly the reasons you outline, like, progressive organizing inside the Democratic Party would make a big difference to policy outcomes would be in Virginia, Colorado, Nevada, the the sort of purplish right-to-work 
states where I agree with you, like what happened with Obama, right, was like Democrats wanted to say they were on favor of the Employee Free Choice Act, and they were just assuming that they would not have 60 votes in the Senate and therefore it couldn't pass. And they would be like, hey, man, too bad. You know, we wanted to pass it, but fucking Republicans, what do you know? Um, but they like won more elections than people thought they were going to win. And suddenly everyone had to like look around the table and be like, uh, are we going to pass this thing we all said we were going to pass? And like they freaked out and said they wouldn't do it. And I think you could really imagine that happening in, in some of these purple states if you get if you get that kind of democratic wave. But it's also where you did not have that like robust intra-party left in 2008, 2009. The Hillary Obama primary was uh, impassioned but did not like have a ton of policy content to it. And there's clearly like a, a desire to like push a more robust sort of social democratic agenda. And this is like a, a concrete, non-crazy, achievable thing you could do is like, I don't even know what you call the opposite of right to work law. But to like pass those uh, is like, one could imagine that, and it would make a big long-term and, difference. And by the way, repealing right-to-work laws, which are pet, right? Like that's another possibility right. in a bunch of these states for for organizing. So thank you for listening to The Weeds. Thank you to Matt and to Sarah, to our engineer, Peter Leonard. The Weeds is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back on Friday. Dun, dun.